I am very well, thank you. Slept well, always weird. First night in a different bed. So I do have the best bed in the world at home. So it's really tough. Neither. That's all too expensive. <laughs> Plywood, yeah. No, it's a really good, it's like natural rubber. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I need a large room. All right, let's get going. Another beautiful day. Let's give it to the Lord. I'm sure you already have, but let's do it again. Yeah. And so, God, we give you ourselves, our heart, our mind, our soul, our strength to use today however you desire and to use the hour before us to expand us, give us the chance to know um, ourselves better, this world better, and most importantly, to know you better as you put all the pieces together for us. Pray for your spirit's wisdom and clarity in matters that can be a little thick today. Um, help us to rise to the challenge. Help me to be clear and help us all to be humble in your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to delve into philosophical culture, which is um, strange waters for many of us. You need to understand that before there was theology, there was philosophy, and that so much of our theology, in its technical sense and in its just purely biblical sense, is very, very philosophical. Philosophy is the, the deep dive <coughs> into reality, why things are the way they are. Uh, and you might say, no, no, that's science. No, science is a material endeavor. It is how we discover the things you can touch, see, feel, taste. Philosophy is how you talk about everything else, which is most of everything. The stuff your senses cannot just take in. So it's a big world that we're going to dive into today. And uh, we're going to talk about one particular aspect of philosophy because this is like this could be a graduate course or a doctoral course. I mean, if you're just going to start talking about philosophy. Um, so we, we want to keep it very, very um, present and very, very um, tangible for us, something we can grasp onto. And part of the reason for this is people are philosophers, whether they like to think themselves that or not. Everybody makes assumptions about what is real and why it's real, what matters and why, it's ma why it matters, what has value and why it has value. Everybody does that. You couldn't live your life without making some of these commitments, some of these decisions. And it's important for us to realize you're not just coming up with those on your own. Culture is informing those for you. Culture is telling you what's important. It's telling you what to do with your time, your money, your energy, your uh, brain. Um, and whatever we all agree to do kind of creates the culture. Like we said last night, culture is something we create, and it's something that helps create us. So we get into the idea of philosophy, which I understand is something that a lot of you probably have not worked on, um, never want to work on, never planned on working on. We're going to spend just a little bit of time on it today. Can I get a, I'm ready? I'm ready. Woo! Yeah, okay. Doesn't, doesn't sound very convincing. So let's get to some, some wordplay here. And just, again, in your triads, just thinking this through, um, let's just look at this first one here, which is diving right into the deep end. How would you describe modernity and post-modernity? Okay, so just get together with your little group and talk about it, and let's see what we come up with. Your little threesomes here, and you're supposed to, I just want to know what you think about it. 
I'm not going to give you definitions first. I want you to know, I want to know what you think about it, and then we'll start putting together some definitions. All right, let's see what we come up with here as we just kind of talk about this together. Let's start with modernity. And of course, you know, we know what it means for something to be modern. We kind of use that as a euphemism to talk about something that's current or now. If somebody has um, music that's just come out, you could say that it's very modern because in time, chronologically, it's happened very recently. Modernity is something different than that. What do you think it is? What is modernity? We primed the pump, just say what you think. Yeah. Right, you just described both, a part of both of these. That in modernity, science did have a voice and, a, and an authority, I think it was a perfect word. And in post-modernity, it has lost that. So in modernity, there was a certainty that came out of scientific investigation. Like, I know what gravity is, you know, Newton and gravity. The apple falls, and he, he calculated the force, the speed, and he puts together this theory of gravity, which was absolutely true until Albert Einstein said, oh no, it's, it's all relative, yeah. But modern was Newton's idea, yeah, yeah. <laughs> radical, I just want to be radical. Yeah, I think there was a commitment to a methodology, tradition's probably a good word, but a way that we always do it. You know, here's the way we always do it. And so in, in philosophical terminology, they would say that's methodology. And that's how you get a whole religion called Methodist. And, and if you are one, I'm not slamming it, I'm just saying it's, it's birthed out of a modern ideology. 
that there is a method to my spirituality, and if you follow the method, you'll become spiritual. Or in Methodist terminology, you'll become holy. That there's a methodology toward holiness. And you just follow the methodology. Now, Methodists are not all, I, I, you can't brand them all that way. I'm just saying as a representation of modern thought. Very good. Tradition or methodology, you can put those two together. Other ideas? These are good ideas. You're on the right track. That's a really great way of saying it. Yeah. You know, the reality is that is a modern ideology. In reality, it, philosophically, and we're not talking about just cultural, like pop modernity and pop postmodernity, popular postmodernity. Because, you know, postmodern, you would say, you know, Volkswagen buses, flannel shirts, Birkenstocks, lots of candles and feathers. Um, you know, uh, dreadlocks. You know, there's lots of things you would say about post-modernity in a culture, you know, in a pop culture sense that is not necessarily what we're talking about when we're talking about in a philosophical sense. So if I can just clarify, this, this complete commitment to the individual is actually modern. This is when Rene Descartes said, anybody remember his famous? I think right, I'm self-verifying. And that is, you just said it beautifully. What did you say? You do you and I'll do me. Yeah, that was, that was like the updated Rene Descartes statement, okay? So I'm self-verifying. Because I think I am, I am. Who else said that? Hmm. <laughs> Who shall I say sent me? The burning bush answers. I am. Tell them I am sent you. Um, Rene Descartes is one of the fathers of the modern era in the self-verification. And we'll get to post-modernity because I think in popular culture, you're exactly right. But in philosophical culture, there's a shift in post-modernity that is probably positive, hopefully. Um, so modernity, highly individualistic, about individualism. Democracy as a government about the individual would not have happened except modernity raised it up. Democracy is a thoroughly modern concept. Right. Anything else? You guys are doing so, so well. This is great. You had to just slap on your thinker and go right to the deep end. I appreciate it. Any others? So let's, let's say yes. What does that say about modernity? It had... Yeah, there is a sense of the absolute, um, basically out of scientific methodology. I can be absolutely certain about this, absolutely certain about that. Why? Because I can prove it through scientific methodology. And that yielded a confidence that, that has defined modernity. Uh, the basic idea in a modern culture was, if there's a problem, we'll figure it out. We'll solve it. If there's a health problem, we'll solve it. If there's an economic problem, we'll solve it. If there's a political problem, we'll solve it. Modernity is, a, is an entirely humanitarian, and not in the sense of helping poor people, 
but in the humanistic sense, it's a completely humanistic endeavor. Uh, so there was this absolute certainty that we will find the answer, we will get the answer, we will figure it out, don't worry, everything's gonna be fine. To the point that in the modern era, the modern project was to create utopia. It was to create perfection. It was to create a world where there is no more sickness, there is no more sorrow, there is no more want, there is no more need. I mean, we'll just take care of absolutely everything. That was the confidence of the modern era. The shift to a postmodern culture happened because that didn't work. <laughs> that didn't happen. The developed countries in the Western world were not happier than undeveloped countries or underdeveloped countries. There wasn't a greater sense of well-being. We weren't necessarily healthier. We stopped dying of things like mumps and measles and rubella, but we started dying of obesity and hypertension and heart attacks. <laughs> So we just traded, or sneezing. So we just traded one set of, of death diseases for another set of death circumstances literally created by our culture. We literally created our next version of how we're gonna die. Modernity did not necessarily make life better in the sense of how people experience their life around them. Um, are my relationships more fulfilling? Is my sense of myself better. I mean, there are more Americans on some kind of antidepressant right now than ever in the history of any civilized world ever. <laughs> right now. And if you're on it, I'm not slapping it. I'm not saying if, if, if I'm so glad it's there. I'm so glad that we have access to something. But why do so many people, why do so many of us need it? And there's this amazing disconnection between what we're hoping to accomplish in modernity that has led to post-modernity. And I can't tell you what post-modernity is. You can look up modernity and get a list this long of, of descriptives of modernity. Just put in Google, what is modernity? And you'll find site after site with the longest. Put in what is post-modernity, and they'll just say, not this. Not that big long, whatever that big long list, post-modernity is just not that. Because we don't know what it is yet. That's why it's not defined by something other than what it is not or what it's after. So post-modernity, somebody didn't just wake up one day and say, you know what, I am tired of modernity. I think today we should start post-modernity. It just slowly happened because what people call the modern project or the enlightenment project, the discovery of perfection didn't work. We didn't figure it out. <laughs> so. With that in mind, how would you describe post-modernity? However you would do it, don't worry that you have the right answer. I just want to know what you think. How would you describe post-modernity? Quietly, apparently. <laughs> I would describe it very privately. Yeah, or to use someone else's term, no absolutes, like I'm unbounded now, like I'm not restricted, I'm not fenced in. Um, modernity, modernity told me what to think. I don't want that anymore. So there's a freedom and an unboundedness. Yeah.
Yeah, and it's so interesting because so many of us say that about postmodernity, but in all honesty, that is a remnant and a holdover, the one thing people liked about modernity. Um, in postmodernity, there is a greater commitment to what we think together. Um, not in terms of defining me, what you said is still true in terms of how I define me, um, but there is a greater sense in finding meaning in what we experience together, all of us together. I mean, that's why social media is such a huge reality in a newly postmodern culture like ours. It really matters to people, what other people that you like or not like <laughs> matters to people, that you get followed on Twitter, follow me on Twitter, follow me anywhere. I just can't believe the arrogance of people saying, follow me. Why would I follow, you follow me. Why would I follow you? Uh, well, I'll follow you if you follow me. Well, then who are we following? I mean, who's in charge? Um, but this idea of, um, of highly individualistic and I am a definition to myself, that is thoroughly modern. And it's interesting that that's the one thing that's really, really holding over in fact, most people, when you ask about postmodernity, they'll say, oh, it's very individual. It's very individualistic. Actually, that's modernity. So that's really good, because we're learning something about postmodernity that it's not that way. And it's funny, because everybody wants to be different together. Like, you know, everybody, like, get gauges, you know. I just really want to be different, like him. Wait, what? You know, and it's, it's this desire to be really, really individual as a group. <laughs> to be really, really different together. Yeah. Other ideas? Post modernity? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and, and that's, uh, you know, because in modernity, part of the absolutes was, I'm not traveling, I've arrived. You know, how I am is how I want to be, who I am is who I want to be, where I am is where I want to be. Part of modernity was this confidence that I've arrived. Um, and again, did that work? Were people happier because they'd arrived? Or were they happier on the journey? <laughs> was the wandering more of an adventure and more of a life? Then this stilted, I've arrived, I have what I want, I have everything I need, life that made us just fat and lazy and watch a lot of reality TV because we didn't have one of our own. Um, so I think part of the postmodern adventure, well, you're correct um, about the sense of being less certain um, and maybe more ambivalent is the bumper sticker, not all who want wander are lost. Have you seen that bumper sticker? And it's very like enlightened and you know new age, whatever. But it's really true. Just because I'm on a journey doesn't mean I'm lost. Just because I haven't arrived doesn't mean I don't know where I am. Does that make sense to you? So I'm trying to paint a picture of postmodernity. It might not be as bad as we think it is. It might be a great opportunity for us in the world of philosophical culture to take advantage of the fact that people are happy wanderers because it's easier to direct somebody who knows they're wandering but doesn't feel lost than it is to direct somebody who's certain they've arrived. Are you with me? And that is the difficulty of, of modernity. 
I've arrived, I have everything I want, I've, I've achieved the American dream. I, I remember once, we, the first house my wife and I bought together, we actually had the chance to build and you know, choose the countertops and wallpaper and all that kind of stuff. And we moved into the American dream house. I mean, it was just like our perfect little house. And the people across the street from us, all new neighborhood, were moving out of their brand new house when we were moving in. So we had met them and we went over to help move like the, the big stuff, the piano and that kind of stuff. And I'm talking to them. And I said, why are you moving? Because they're both retired teachers. And they just said, well, we've achieved the American dream and it's not. This is not my dream. I spent my whole life taking care of this house and all our money taking care of this house. This is not my American dream, but this is what I worked my whole life for and now I don't know what to do. And this is like two like people my age, like, because I wasn't this old <laughs> when it was happening. It's like, that's so sad. What do you think it's going to be? And they literally said, we don't know, but we were happier pursuing a dream than having it. And that to me describes this shift. And I want to paint that in a positive light for us because so many of us have been told such horribly negative things about this. <laughs> We've built up this idea that what the world is becoming is worse, um, that it's of biblical proportions, and that this moral relativism and this epistemological, epistemological relativism is a problem for us. It is an opportunity for us. And that's the way I want to see it. So let's talk about this a little bit again, if you can, in your little threesomes. You're doing a great job thinking this through. I want you to stay engaged. That's why I'm making you say it to each other first. Who do you think has made the big difference moving culture out of modernity into whatever's next, into not modernity? Who has done that for us? Kate, okay, talk. Do it. Go for it. necessarily <laughs> categories of people if you know names that's not bad <laughs> then they got older and started kept singing that song <laughs> all right do we have some ideas Let's pull it together and see what we got. Who has done this to us? Who decided that we would stop being modern? 
Who has caused this great problem of ours? TV repairmen. No, probably not. Any ideas? Who is it? Yes. Uh, a few media, first day, uh, but also social media in our world. It's like the beginning of MySpace to Facebook to what it is today and Instagram, those kinds of things. Also, in that realm, uh, the television. Television? The telly? Uh, the telly. <laughs> like, what they make okay. Like, I remember growing up, there was, like, for an example, like, there were no cussing in commercials. Yeah. And then I remember the first time I heard a, cu a cuss word in a commercial, my family, like, lost their crap. <coughs> but, like, I, like, and now it's, like, so normal to hear cussing all the time in the television. But then, also, I feel like we're getting to a point where, like, it's like, excuse me, we're, like, we're actually not, we're, we're kind of drawing out of that. So, like, as an example, Mad Max that they just released like less than a year ago, it's even that long ago. Like I was expecting like a lot of language because you're in a postmodern, like apocalyptic world kind of thing, and there was like maybe one word in it that was like inappropriate, and I was like shocked hmm. by it. So I don't know, we might be moving out of that kind of an idea and moving on to bigger topics kind of thing, but I think it's that for sure. I think you're right, and I think it it's not your television box, your square, your screen. It's not your monitor, it's who's behind it, right? It's who's writing, not even the actors. You, it always cracks me up, you, like you see an act like Benedict Cumberpatch, anybody else a fan? I have a man crush on Benedict, I gotta say. Um, as all the girls are swoon, uh, all the guys are like, his weird lips. And the girls are like, I know. Um, anyway, uh, sorry, I went there, didn't I? That's bad. But it's so funny because as Sherlock Holmes, he is so brilliant. That's who I have a crush on, is that character. And then you see Benedict in an actual interview and you're like, oh, he still sounds smart because he's got that accent, but he's just like anybody else, kind of a goof. No, he's not. <laughs> but it's funny because it's really the writers. It's the people behind that. I want to get to know those guys. Um, like the writer behind Breaking Bad. Vince Gilligan, Vince that, the, the Gil, uh, Gilligan, right? Anyway, yeah, because Vince Vaughn is yeah. not that. <laughs> but that idea that, you know, a whole show like that, it's that guy who's creating something. It's the writers and it's the producers who are saying, this is a great story. And that's what it gets down to is the media has changed the culture, has moved us on because they're telling a story that pushes us forward. They're telling a story that brings despair. They're telling a story that redefines reality. They're telling a story like, like Breaking Bad is a great example because it's Walter White's story of being a normal good guy, science teacher who has a terrible crisis. And I'm, this is not a spoiler alert. I'm not gonna tell you the whole thing because you might wanna watch it. Um, has a horrible crisis that redefines his life, and it's literally the rest of the story of how he compromises and compromises and compromises and compromises, and he keeps yelling at the screen, everything I do, I do for the sake of my family while he's losing his family. And so that story is, is communicating something to us. Not everybody is a science teacher who finds out he has this crisis, whatever, but people live normal lives get faced with crisis and justify their actions. So it's authenticating my experience. And that's how media continues to push culture forward. So yes, it is the media, but it's not the screen, it's probably not even the actors, it's the writers and producers behind it. 
whoever, one of my professors said, whoever tells the most compelling story shapes the culture. And I think that is exactly true. What did Jesus come and do? He told stories over and over and over, trying to shape a culture. What culture? The kingdom of heaven on earth. And what happened with the church is we started making principles and rules and facts, and we became factoid Christians and lost our story. And in losing our story, we failed to continue to shape our culture. We try to make rules. Rules don't motivate. Stories shape. Who else? Who else took us from one to the other? That's a half up. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think a, a big shift that really happened in the 60s and the 70s, um, both the civil rights movement and uh, more hippie, East kind of thing, where um, I think those were two things that really showed that there was a big change happening. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. The counter culture which needs a culture to go counter to. And the, counter, the culture they were countering was modern culture. Yeah. And so this counter or revolutionary movement created something. And I can remember, because I was born in 61, I can remember in my younger years, I was born in California in 61, where the Jesus movement you know, really was, grabbed a foothold. Um, and I can remember people at church who didn't look like church people and I can remember asking my dad, who was a pastor that wore a dark suit and a white shirt and a dark tie every week to church, like, do these people belong here? <laughs> and he's like, we're still trying to figure that out, son. Um, <laughs> because they were not just challenging suit and tie culture in the business world and in the political world, predominantly. They were challenging that culture everywhere. But they had a reason, too. They were the ones reading Rousseau, Foucault, and Derrida. I mean, they were philosophically motivated and marginalized by their society. But that started at places like Cal Berkeley, where people were reading some of the people we're going to talk about in just a minute. That's part of why. So we'll say educators. Educators have definitely shaped this and pushed it forward. Because the educators, not just philosophy, but in the arts, architecture, music, the postmodern movement, the first two places people started calling something postmodern was architecture and literature. Those were the two bases for the culture to start to shift away from modernity. And the first one was literature, and that was Jacques Derrida, who started a, a movement that we're going to talk about in just a little bit. But educators, for sure, were the ones who were reading that on the front and started challenging the assumptions that people had had forever. And it started on the coasts and moved this way. It hasn't gotten all the way to Nebraska, but it started moving yeah. this way. There are still lots of places you can go in the world and be thoroughly modern and not be forced to. Uh... They still wear flannel because of what it was, not because of what it is. <laughs> kind of like Josh wears it because it was. Yeah, he's in the middle. <laughs> he's, he's a bridger. Anybody else that you would say? Right, we got a couple of really good ones here. And we don't even know it. Yeah. We don't even know why we feel what we feel. We don't even know why we think what we think. We think we came up with it ourselves, and we did not. Would that even have to do a little bit with the uh, um, modernity thing? Like you talked about being away from, like, or being individualized 
coming back to like in his previous mitra, he talks about herd mentality a lot. And like references back to how it's a certain thing. Yeah. And is that kind of what we derive that from now? I think, yeah, Nietzsche is definitely one of the framers of the postmodern movement. Yeah, absolutely. Because he used that whole idea of questioning every bit of authority. He used the idea of questioning every assumption that was ever out there. And ended up insane and killing himself. So, which is where that can take you. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Would you say it's like the black sheep mentality? Do the black sheep do the, like I know you were saying that you want to be all together but different, or different but all together? Yeah, and I think that part of, of, of um, modernity and, and a methodological, a systematic way of understanding reality was that there were assumptions that you would make, and the way that the countercultures began is just not making the same assumptions. So if you're a modern and you're looking at somebody who doesn't accept your assumptions, they're the black sheep. But if you're the person who's not taking the same assumptions, you're challenging the status quo. So it kind of depends on which side of the fence you're on. So what is the effect of all this on the church? What is the effect of this shift away from modernity into post-modernity have on the church? Talk about it together. I'll give you two minutes to come up with the greatest ideas in the world, and then we'll talk about them. Sixteen seconds. If you have a great idea, say it now. All right, good job. So let's pull it together and see what we got. What does all this uh, do to the church? What is the effect on the, the church? And obviously, I mean here in America, where we live. Oh, you were just talking a second ago. You just say it. Yeah? May us rethink how we show ourselves to the secular world. Is that good? Yes. Okay. And no. Okay. Why? Yes, because it made us relook at our own faith and challenge ourselves and 
reason we had to do that was because people ended up losing respect for things that had previously been stood uh, sacred. Yeah. And there was a confusion. Is it sacred because you said it's sacred, or are you saying it's sacred because it's really sacred? Exactly. <laughs> you know, uh, is it sacred because you want it to be, or is it something we would all recognize together as sacred and you're just protecting it? And we got lost. We started calling things sacred that weren't necessarily just because that's the way we wanted it as church. So it was good and, and hard. Yeah. I think going along with that, um, we changed this idea Relaxed what we wore because we wanted people to understand like even if you couldn't afford nice clothing you can still come to church but that totally flip-flopped to I'm going to wear my pajamas to church and have like no respect for the place I'm going to kind of idea like it went from like this great idea and then we changed it changed our culture of what we wear to church and how we present ourselves at church and those kinds of things too either I'm dressing to impress someone or you're we lost, I feel like we've lost reverence from the church. Like, yes, we as the people are the church, but like, we've lost reverence for the holiness of the building itself, too. Yeah. Yes, was that a hand up? It was so little up. You need to be more like Hermione and less like Harry. <laughs> there you go, yes. <laughs> And in fact, I think modernity so informed the church that it changed the gospel. And there wouldn't be a health and wealth gospel except for modernity. We changed the gospel. We changed it from come to a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ to vote for Jesus and all your wildest dreams will come true. Another movie reference, just want to say. <laughs> Which, again, this is a hard one because it's good and bad. I mean, we don't, we're not preserving and serving the methods of worship. We're trying more desperately to connect personally in worship. But in that, we're losing something from the past. We're losing some good stuff in our methods from the past, and we're missing some of those connections with God. But also, that started to change because people were saying, I'm not sure your methods work. I'm not sure there's seven steps to being filled with the Spirit. I actually read a book when I was about your age called Seven Steps to Being Filled with the Spirit. So you finish the book and go through the steps. And you say, well, I must be filled with the Spirit because I did the seven steps. Um, and it began to question, maybe in a good way, but it's hard because I wanted seven steps. 
you know, I wanted it to be easy. I wanted to take the Holy Spirit pill and be filled with the Spirit. I didn't want to have to like search for it and I didn't want to be so organic. I wanted a method. Methods make things easy. Right? Yes, ma'am. Yes. And you're exactly right. In fact, you're like the perfect bridge into where we're going next, but I know you want to make a comment, so we're going to do that. So let me just help build that bridge up a little bit. This comes down to truth. This whole philosophical change, this shift comes down to our ability to understand and represent the truth. The problem was, was when we started saying things like, God hates homosexuals, that's the truth. Right. That's what we started changing and started putting the label religious truth on all kinds of things. And it discredited truth and the church. Yeah. So I'm a little bit like her, but she sounds way better. <laughs> Focus. But I think we've kind of um, whacked off a little bit on what we believe and stand on. Like, what do you define multiple homosexuality? And like, it used to be like that was something really completely disliked and like we knew it was wrong but we've gotten to a point where it doesn't surprise us anymore when we hear about it and we've actually begun accepting it more and being like well that's the way you are this is what I believe but you know you don't you're not the same way you don't have to see it the same way as me and we don't I don't think not pressuring that's not the right word but we're not as I, I think we give in too much a lot of stuff in this world that we don't, that we shouldn't give into. Yeah, but I think part of the problem is we, we have made an assumption that because I'm the one holding the Bible, oh, the MacArthur Study Bible, <laughs> because I'm holding the Bible and I'm the one reading it, I get to declare what's true and what's not true. And when we argue, what we say is, yeah, but you don't have a Bible that I do. You don't have an absolute truth like I have. And what we've missed is the fact that our interpretation became what the Bible means in the world. Whether we got it right or not, we claimed it as truth. This is the truth, not necessarily MacArthur's, but the Bible is the truth. The difference is we started saying what I'm telling you the Bible says is the truth. Do you see the difference? My interpretation of it became the truth. And that's part of the difficulty. So let's move on because this is a fun discussion, but I've got to fill in your notes. So the crux, the, the idea behind postmodernity, the idea in philosophical culture that pushed modernity forward can come, and it's got a lot of layers, okay? It's got all kinds of different layers to it. But if I had to take it down to just one word, it would be this word, deconstruction. And this is the, it, people use it all the time to mean, like, let's deconstruct this, like, let's take it apart in its, constituents, its constituent components. That's not what deconstruction means. Construct, to construct something means to put it together. 
So people assume that destructing it means to take it apart. And that is not what Jacques Derrida meant when he used this word to describe um, his idea. Here's the big idea behind deconstruction. That is to take the assumed definition of a word and the fact that this set of letters represents that definition. So let's take um, the word suffering, okay? When I say suffering, you, you all connect with something. Some of you think of a Bible verse, or you think of Jesus, or you think of what recently happened to you between you and your boyfriend or girlfriend, or you think of people in um, parts of the world that are suffering. We all have some kind of a context. You don't know what I mean when I say suffering. When I say suffering, I put it out there, and then you receive it, and you interpret it the way you understand it. Is that clear? Because I know it's philosophical. Okay? So Jacques Derrida said, once I say it, it is disconnected from what I mean when I say it. Now it's just the word suffering hanging out there. And then when each of you take it in, you have a different meaning for it. So I can't assume that what I say is what you hear. Unless I say two plus two equals four. That makes the same sense to everybody. <laughs> that just makes sense, right? We know what that is. You don't do anything in your brain. You just go, yep, boy, Greg's smart. <laughs> well, when I say suffering, we all have different experiences that inform this. We have different ideas that inform it, different contexts right now in our lives. Some of you have never, ever, ever, ever suffered. So you don't have any personal experience. So you've connected it to something outside of you. Some of you have suffered deeply, horribly. And so when I bring up suffering, there's a deep, deep, deep connection. Jacques questioned this, and in the questioning of it, he called it deconstruction, separating the author's meaning from the word, the word as a neutral communicator, and then meaning coming in terms of the listener or the reader. And that's where you get this idea that truth is relative in postmodernity. Right? Because I, I don't have an authoritative meaning for it anymore. And a modern would say, well, let's just look it up in a dictionary, which nobody uses anymore. We don't use a dictionary. We use Wikipedia. Because <laughs> it's the first thing that comes up on your Google search. And you look at it, and you see what it means, which Wikipedia is the perfect example of a postmodern hermeneutic. Wikipedia, the most used site on the Google search engine is Wikipedia. And it is a combined understanding of what we all mean when we say anything that we say. It's being built constantly by the Wikipedians, which is us. We put up stuff on Wikipedia. We determine how it's used, which is different than Webster. Webster observed how everybody talked. And what he wrote down in his authoritative dictionary that gave us the meaning of a word was the way we all used it. It was the exact same thing, except it was one guy that made all the observations. But we took it as authority. You could write a paper in sixth grade and use Webster. Well, I could write a paper in sixth grade. You probably use Wikipedia in sixth grade. Um, but when I was in sixth grade, you'd look up something in Webster, and that was the meaning. And everybody understood it as being, especially if you put the little dots and little commas and everything like Webster did, then it looked really smart. And that's where we got meaning. That was our absolute truth of meaning. 
So in this idea of deconstructing meaning from its carrier, from the word that communicates it, it brought all kinds of other things into question, like foundationalism, like believing that there are absolute presumed foundations upon which we will interpret our reality. That when I say suffering, we all mean the same thing, that your suffering is like my suffering, and that it all fits in one meaning and one category, and that is the foundation for our understanding of suffering, or for any other idea, political idea, or religious idea. And it stripped away the idea of a foundation being the definition for why something is the way it is. It stripped away the idea of structuralism, that because I put the word suffering right here in the sentence, the structure around it defines it. Or because you are in this community, the structure around the community defines you. Or because you're in this economy and you have this kind of job, that this economy and that job defines you. The structure around you defines you. Which is a very modern idea. In a post-modern, post-structuralist mindset, that is not the presumption. That just because this is the context, this is the meaning. Are you still with me? I know we're kind of like swimming in like molasses here. But you're still with me, right? Okay. And the last one is the one that's probably easiest for us to understand, though it looks really weird, authoritarianism. Um, but just stick with the word author. If you know what I, if you understand what I said about deconstruction. So if I'm writing a book and I put the word suffering in there, I'm the author, wouldn't it just mean what I think it means? I wrote the book. I put the word suffering in there. Shouldn't it just mean what I want it to mean because I'm the author? Or I wrote the Declaration of Independence. Or I wrote the Bill of Rights. Shouldn't it mean just what I want it to mean? I wrote it. I'm the author. I should get to determine its meaning. Is that what happens in our world? No. It starts changing on layers and layers and layers of dissemination. The further away from the author it gets. So in a basic hermeneutic, you guys have taken hermeneutics, which is the study of interpretation. Right? Hermeneutics means interpretation. So the art, the science of interpretation, hermeneutics, it has been called the science of interpretation. Now theologians are calling it the art of interpretation because we've gone from modern to postmodern. <laughs> so it's not necessarily the five points of classic interp interpretation. It is now the, the um, interpretive spiral. You know, this understanding of a spiraling around as opposed to these five points that you follow. Well, one of those five points in classical her hermeneutics was authorial intent. You guys remember that phrase, that word? Authorial intent. Part of our, my goal in studying the Bible is to find out what the author meant when he said that or she said that. I have to know the intent of the author if I want to know what the word means. And in a post-modern, post-authoritarian idea, what the author meant is irrelevant to what it means now. And you see this happening in political structures right now. People reinterpreting the Bill of Rights all over the place. Um, so there are, any questions about this? I know it's deep water, but, pardon? So the foundational idea is that there's a ground of meaning. There's a base of meaning. There's a foundation of meaning. And that everything that I say, every reference I use, comes up out of that foundation. Like the well, yeah, whatever it is. And so 
I use like Webster's Dictionary as an example, as a foundation for meaning of a particular word. I look up um, telepathy in Webster's Dictionary and it gives me an authoritative, it, it becomes the foundation out of which I will derive the meaning for what telepathy means. As opposed to Wikipedia, which is what we all think it means. Then structuralism, the definition of a word is where it's placed. In foundationalism, it's where it comes up from. Yeah, the context, exactly. So because I use suffering in the sentence right here, you know what I mean because of its context. Or because you're at E. Cola and you say, I'm a student at E. Cola, that somehow that context defines who you are. So you don't have to say anything more. Like if somebody knows E. Cola, they know you. That would be structuralism. You're defined very well. And Jacques Derrida was questioning that, saying, is that necessarily true? That the structure brings the meaning, the structure brings the definition. So when you talk to somebody about postmodernity, um, especially if they're not American Christians, they're making these assumptions that meaning is somehow a free-for-all, that truth is a free-for-all, and that we're disconnected from the foundations, we're disconnected from the structures. Yes. Um, Post-authoritarianism means the meaning is in the author. What the author meant is what the word means. And post-authority means that's not necessarily true. It could mean what we all want it to mean, or we all think it means, or it could mean what the listener means. It could be what the author means, but it's not necessarily just what the author means. Because I could use a word that you've never heard of before, like... Um, Lapsarian. Anybody heard of Lapsarian? It's a technical word. So I could tell you it means purple puppies. That's authoritarian. You just take it based on me saying, I know what it is. I gave you a word you never used, and I've told you it's about purple puppies. That's what it means. You're kind of stuck with that. It's not what it means, by the way. But, um, so let's talk about the theological pitfalls, and this is the last part we'll do this, this uh, morning, and then we'll finish it up tonight. The theological pitfalls, like what happened in the church in this shift was the big question of how do we know what the Bible means? How, do, how, um, how are we certain what the Bible means? And this came out of scholarship. It came out of academia. It doesn't come out of, on the other side, pietistic experience. It came out of, <laughs> out of, out of people getting formal education. And finding out um, the distance between what we think of as the Bible and you have on the desk in front of you and what we actually have in ancient manuscripts or how in the world could we have known or presumed to know what Paul meant. And out of the academy, out of education, came this questioning of the meaning of Scripture, the truth of Scripture. And it all came down to the Bible. It didn't come down to practices within the church. It came down to how we understand the Bible as the Word of God. And that led to this liberal movement that really started just about the 43, you know, early 40s, just about the time that postmodernity started. And guys were going to Princeton and to Yale and learning post-structural, post-authoritarian, post-foundationalist um, philosophy and importing that into scripture. And it created this movement, which by circumstance created what? 
on the, on, on the other side. You have liberals and you have conservatives. So when this started, there was a group of people who had to say, no, 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 no. And they began conserving what was. That's what a conservative is. It's somebody who conserves and keeps what is in the face of potential danger or in the face of potential movement. And that has led us to a post-Christian society. That has led us into an understanding that um, Christianity as its own defining culture, as an aspect of our overall culture, has lost its voice. It's become relativized, marginalized. It's just another voice. It doesn't actually have any authority because the church's voice and authority came out of our understanding that we had God's word as our authority. And ostensibly, what we were saying to the rest of culture that was supposed to help define culture and make life better was based on God's word. So when they started questioning God's word, we lost our voice. And to be fair, and to be honest, we were abusing our voice. We were saying God said to a lot of things that we were just hoping he would say. And conservative became a conservation of a way of life more than the truth of scripture. Are you still with me? I know you're hungry and it's almost lunchtime, but I don't want you to miss this because it was not necessarily good. We were claiming God's voice on all kinds of things and it was not healthy. And it began this accommodation, which is what you've all referred to and thought about when you think about the church's shift that we've accommodated culture. We've changed the way we wear, the way we dress, what we say, how we say it, what we sing, who's welcome, who's not welcome. We've made all these accommodations because we lost the sense of authority. We lost this sense of, well, how do I know where meaning is? How do I know what the Bible means? How, how can I be sure? How can I be sure <laughs> in a world that's constantly changing? Um, and that was the idea that the church, sorry, that's a really old song. Anybody recognize that? I was badly sung. Oh, see, that was horribly sung. Anyway. We lost this sense of confidence that we actually knew truth, that we held meaning. And so we started to try to find it elsewhere. And that was the liberal movement. So we'll take up here, right here, tonight. And we'll lock this down. So if you have any questions, write them down now. We can start with those tonight.